0: Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. What you're going to hear today is the first of a three-part sermon series that I co-taught with my good friend, Roger Valci, pastor. He's a pastor out in Dublin, California at Valley Christian uh, Center Church or Valley Christian Church, not the Valley Christian Center. Um, and uh, I did this uh, over the summer through Zoom Actually, no, it wasn't Zoom. I recorded the videos. uh, They sent it to them. They doctored them up. Anyway, you don't care about all that. Um, It was a series on the Bible. And I, um, this is one of my favorite topics, understanding the complexity, the mystery, the tensions within scripture. I, I love understanding where the Bible came from, the canonization process. I love wrestling with tensions or apparent contradictions in the Bible and on and on it goes. So this is the first of three, uh, quote, 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 unquote, sermons that I did. Um, but I thought that the tone, the vibe, the feel of this would fit perfectly with the podcast. So that's why I'm uploading all three to the podcast. This first one is about, The canonization of the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? Why 66 books and not 67 books? What about all the other pieces of religious literature that uh, Jews and Christians were reading at that time? Who decided which books were in and out? How did they decide which books were in and out? and on and on it goes. So that's what we're going to talk about in this podcast. In the next podcast, I'm going to talk about the reliability of the Bible. We're going to do uh, a bit of, uh, we're going to look at history and archaeology, like extra biblical history and archaeology. Does that support the Bible? Does it present problems with the veracity of the Bible? And then in the third um, episode, I'm going to talk about the Evidence of the reliability, reliability of the Bible from the, its internal message. There's something about the message itself that adds credibility to the content of that message. That's um, going to be the third and final video in this series. So uh, for the next few podcasts, you're just going to hear from me and also... Um, This one's going to be okay uh, in terms of audio. The second one, I did do a lot of like PowerPoint visuals. I'm looking at pictures. I'm drawing. I'm looking at texts and so on. So these videos are these podcasts are also videos on my YouTube channel. This one, you wouldn't need to really go over to the YouTube unless you wanted to see my face. Um, in my basement. But the next one, you might want to wander over and watch that video because that one does have some visuals that um, that might be helpful. So anyway, without further ado, please welcome to the show myself talking about the canonization of scripture. Hello, friends. My name is Preston Sprinkle, and it's so good to be with you sort of be with you as much as I can be with you through this camera. I truly wish I could be out there with you all. Uh, I've been at your church a few times. The first time was a, a few years ago when Roger invited me to come out and preach on Sunday morning and give another talk that evening. I hung out with a lot of uh, the leaders at Valley Christian and uh, met several uh, attendees of Valley Christian and just had the most amazing experience. And it was at that time when I got to know Roger and um, as Roger can can verify, we just really hit it off. It was one of those instant friendships where we're like finishing each other's sentences, just resonating on so many things. And so a few years later, when I started in a, a nonprofit, I, I asked Roger to be on the board of that. And uh, I just didn't want to move forward in that ministry by myself. I needed Roger um, on my board, and he's been such a dear friend ever since. And I've kept in touch with several other members at uh, Valley Christians. So thank you so much for having me on, um, well, having me to come and talk to you about something that's so dear to my heart, to to talk about the Bible. I mean, we Christians, we often talk from the Bible. Uh, We... Uh, should uh, read the Bible and study the Bible. And sometimes we can go a long time without talking about the Bible. Like where did the Bible come from? What is the Bible? Uh, How did it come into my hands? What about translation? And what language was it written in? And who made the copies of the copies of the copies? And can we trust the Bible? And that's kind of the overarching theme that Roger and I um, have been discussing. And we're going to continue to discuss over the next several weeks um, I have a copy here of an old Bible of mine. This was given to me, I think, let's see, it must have been about a year after I became a Christian. Somebody bought me this Bible. It didn't look like this. It actually had kind of a, a fake plasticky cover on it. And after about five or six years that fell off, and I had to go and cut a piece of leather from a backpack and cover it. And actually I don't know if you'll be able to see this, I actually had to pump it full of uh, silicone right here to hold the pages together. And I drilled holes in it because, I mean, if you if you look through here, I mean, this Bible has been with me uh, everywhere. I spent a semester in Israel in fall of 1999. It took the Bible with me to all the different sites, the biblical sites, and took little notes in the margins. I've got, you know, little sticky notes here from like Bible studies that I led, you know, 25 years ago. Like when I first became a Christian and and um, this, this Bible is just really special, uh, to me. It started to fall apart. That's why I, I don't actually use it anymore. I lost a few, the first few pages of Genesis <laughs> and, um, the, yeah, this part of the Babylon babel uh, the tower of Babel story is falling out. And, and so, um, yeah, but I still keep it as kind of a, um, a memoir, I guess, but also just a reminder to myself of how much the Bible has been a, a central part of my life, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was around 19 years old. I'm, I'm 44 now. And when I first became a Christian, I hadn't prior to that time, I hadn't been a, a student of anything. I hadn't, I think I've read by that time I had read one book, like just book in general. I I, I went uh, 17 years of my life without reading a whole book cover to cover. Finally, I I read a book cover to cover. I I've, I'm not a natural reader. I'm not a natural student but when i became a christian at the age of 19 i prayed that prayer in james 1 that says if anybody lacks wisdom let him ask god and god would you know grant it to you generously i'm i'm paraphrasing james james 1 and i prayed that prayer and i thought that i was going to wake up the next day really smart and i woke up the next day and i was really dumb. (laughs) I I didn't know any, I didn't miraculously know any more facts than I did the night before. I was like, Oh, this prayer didn't work. I was supposed to wake up with all this wisdom, but almost overnight God did, I would say miraculously build into me this, um, this insatiable, insatiable desire to want to study the Bible. I would lock myself in the closet for like seven hours and just read and read and read and study and study and study. I would had these old. My mom had an old shoebox full of cassette tapes of sermons, and I would go and I would listen to those sermons over and over and over, and look up every passage that the the preacher was talking about. And almost overnight, I went from being a person who hated to study, hated to read, to absolutely loving the Bible, almost to a fault. Sometimes I would ignore relationships and ignore you know eating and other or working you know just to study the Bible. That was twenty five years ago, and um I'm not, I don't, you know, I, I don't quite lock myself up in, in the closet and study the Bible for seven hours a day, uh, but I, I still have a great, great love and passion for uh, the scriptures. So I'm, I'm super excited to share with you about the Bible. That's what we're talking about, the Bible and specifically the reliability of the Bible. Um, for this morning, I'm going to talk about where the Bible came from. Where did the Bible come from? did it just fall out of the sky one day, like in the middle ages, it just kind of dropped out of the sky or after, you know, Jesus got done preaching in the first century, you know, he died and rose again. And then the apostles kind of preached a little bit. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this golden Bible that kind of appeared somewhere, you know that, well, obviously that's not how it happened. Um, it didn't, the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky. Um, it, you know, there was a bit of a messy process, but, um, by which the the formation of the Bible came to be. And that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning. I want to talk about three things, three things. Uh, number one, the canonization of the Old Testament. Number two, the canonization of the New Testament. And number three, why this matters. So canonization. Um, when I say canon, I'm not talking about a a big gun on a pirate ship, uh, nor am I talking about a camera. <laughs> um, the, the word canon just comes from the Greek word kanon. It means a, a like a measuring stick, a a um, a rule or standard. That's, that's what the word canon means. And that word came to be used to describe the, the canon or the books of the Bible as the rule or standard by which our belief and practice would be measured by. So, and I just, I don't, uh, there's Beyond that, there's nothing really that more important to talk about the word, you know, to to understand about the word canon. It's just that sometimes you will see the phrase, the canonization or the New Testament canon. And that's just where that came to be. So I want to talk about the Old Testament canon, how that came to be, then the New Testament canon, and then why this matters. I will say up front that, that understanding the Old Testament canon, how the Old Testament came to be is much easier and less messy, I think, than... Understanding the New Testament canon. So, how did the Old Testament come to be? Uh, As you know from uh, Roger's talk, and just from you know uh, looking at your table of contents in your Bible, you know that there are thirty-nine books in the Old Testament and twenty-seven in the New. So, how did these thirty-nine books come to be part of the canon? How come there wasn't forty books? Were these the only thirty-nine books that were written in that day and age? uh, were, were there uh, some books that were disputed within those 39? Those are the things we want to talk about. Well, to understand the formation of the canon, uh, you just have to understand a, a prophetic activity within the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, you see prophets um, like Moses and uh, Samuel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others. You see prophets that mediated God's word to other other people, primarily to Israel. They mediated God's word to Israel and they they started out by doing that verbally. They would speak God's word to God's people. And uh, as you may know, there there were uh, standards by which to determine who's a true prophet and who's a false prophet. Because you have lots of people in the Old Testament who are claiming to be prophets, but their message is not a credible message. And they are shown to be false prophets. So in the midst of true prophets and false prophets, people had ways to determine you know who was a false prophet from who was a true prophet. So as true prophets were uh, speaking God's word and speaking God's word and preaching God's message, after a while they ended up writing down that message. And because they were already verified as a legitimate prophet through their oral message, when they came out with a book, then the veracity, the legitimacy of that book as God's word was all you know already came with its stamp of approval on it. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament, we, um, according to the Bible itself, Moses wrote the first five books, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, there's some debates about that, especially in academic or scholarly circles. I think uh, for what it's worth, a good case can be made that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Uh, we know various other books that were written by prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Habakkuk, Malachi, and, and others. There's also some books that we we don't know the author of, but, but they also came to be understood as, you know, coming from the mouth or shall I say the pen of a prophet. And so those books like, you know, Joshua and Judges and Ruth and others also came to be clu- included um, in the Old Testament canon. It does seem to be the case that Malachi... This is disputed, and we don't know for sure, but it seems like Malachi was the last book written in the Bible, maybe in the early 400s BC. Certainly, there were other books written uh, close to that time. Uh, First and Second Chronicles was actually written um, very late. There's debates about the book of Daniel, but around 400 BC, we see the last book's Of the Old Testament canon written. And and not too long after, we see references to this canon in Jewish literature, Jewish literature that was written between the Testaments, Jewish literature that isn't itself inspired or isn't itself canonical, but is referring to what we now call the Old Testament canon. For instance, in 132 BC, uh, there's a statement in a Jewish book called Uh, Syrac, or sometimes referred to as Ecclesiasticus in 132 BC, and Syrac says, and I'll quote, uh, Many teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets. And that idea of law and prophets um, is one way to refer to the Old Testament canon. We also see in Josephus writing in the first century AD, okay, right around the time of the New Testament, Josephus refers to the holy books or the sacred books. And he even lists those books, which matches our 39 books in the English Old Testament canon. In the Hebrew Old Testament canon, there's actually 22 books, but it's actually the same content, okay? Because in the Hebrew canon, books like 1st and 2nd Samuel are just Samuel. It's one book. 1st and 2nd Kings is just Kings, one book, and so on. So, the 22 books in the Hebrew Old Testament is the same content, basically, as the 39 books in our English canon. And again, Josephus refers to those books. So by the time the New Testament comes around, this idea of a body of inspired literature that the people of God considered to be scripture was well-established. There were a few books, okay? There were a few books that, you know, uh, had a, a little harder time making it into the canon. Books like the Song of Songs, sometimes called the Song of Solomon. Some people read this book and, you know, thought to themselves, "Mm, is that talking about what I think it's talking about? I don't know if God's people should be talking about that stuff. Seems a little racy, right? Because it has some sexual images um, in that book. So some people said, you know, I'm not sure this should be in the canon, but the overwhelming majority said, no, it is canonical, especially when we understand the beauty of our sexuality in light of the metaphor of Yahweh's love for his people or in the New Testament, you know, we would say Jesus's love for the church. Uh, Ecclesiastes had a hard time. Uh, sorry, hard time, a harder time. Not, not, it's not like, you know, loads of people were against the book of Ecclesiastes, but some did raise some eyebrows because Ecclesiastes, if you've read it recently, it can be a little bit pessimistic. <laughs> and I think once you understand the genre and purpose of Ecclesiastes, it makes perfect sense. But um, just if you just kind of read bits and pieces here and there, it does seem to be kind of pessimistic. Uh, the book of Esther never mentions the word or the name God. And so some people said, I don't know if this should be in the canon. But when you look at it, it's like, man, th- th- there's a reason, a really intentional reason why the Jewish author left out the name God in the book. Because that was a reflection of the times he was living in it seems like god isn't here and i'm going to make that point by even on a literary level by leaving god's name out to convey um in a really creative way in a sense uh the message i'm trying to say that god seems to be silent but guess what even in his apparent silence he's working in and through his people kind of behind the scenes as he does through the person of Uh, Esther, Mordecai, and others. What about the Apocrypha? Okay, the Apocrypha has to do is is a word used to describe the you know seven to ten different books that some people, uh, some traditions like the Roman Catholic tradition or the Greek Orthodox tradition, uh, they actually actually include the Apocrypha in their canon. The Apocrypha is just a, a, a. you know, seven to 10 books. They're all written during the intertestamental time period. Books like, you know, if you were raised Catholic, you might remember the books of first and second Maccabees, the the book of wisdom, the book of Judith or Tobit and others, the letter of Jeremiah. Uh, These are books that were not written by Catholics. Okay. Sometimes we think, oh, the Apocrypha, it's a Catholic book. Well, it's adopted by Roman Catholics as part of the canon. But it's actually written by Jews, um, zealous Jews, religious Jews that are writing a lot of really good things. This is the thing. I, I think the Apocrypha is really good to read. I just don't think it's inspired by God in the same way that the rest of the canon is. It's not. Um, it's not part of scripture. It's not authoritative in the same way that the Bible is. But I think it's really good religious literature in the same way that I might think, Francis Chan's crazy love is good religious literature, but not inspired or a purpose driven life or pick your popular Christian book today. We're going to say, well, that's not inspired, but it's good to read. I would have the same view of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha has a lot of good history. It's not perfect history, but it's good history and has a lot of good religious things in it um, that help us not only bridge the gap between the old and new Testament, but also uh, give us a view of how Faithful Jews were living in the midst of some really tough, tough times of persecution between the Testaments. So that's the Old Testament uh, canon. Um, There's, again, not a lot of disputes about um, uh, what books belong in the canon, what books don't. As far as the Apocrypha goes you know um Protestants non catholic christians non orthodox Christians, not not you know the non Greek Orthodox Christians, we don't embrace the Apocrypha as canonical, largely because first century Judaism didn't It's interesting that l- the later Christians uh two three four hundred years after Jesus, some later Christians did think the Apocrypha should be in the canon, but first century Jews never viewed this as part of their scripture this this was not the Apocrypha was not part of um Scripture, in the sense that a first century Jew would be using that term, and so Protestant Christianity basically follows the Jewish canon of the Old Testament um, okay, so what about the formation of the New Testament canon? Well, what I said about the prophets, you know speaking God's Word and then writing down god's word that that is very similar to what we can say about uh, New Testament apostles, New Testament apostles went around speaking the word of God, and it was received and viewed as the word of God. First um, Thessalonians two thirteen. I'll just read it here. Paul says, First uh, Thessalonians two thirteen, and we also thank God continually um because when you receive the word of god which you heard from us we came in preaching and speaking to you and teaching you and when we did that you thessalonians paul says you accepted it not as a human word not as a human word but as actually is the word of god which is indeed at work in you who believe when we came speaking to you it wasn't just advice wasn't just wisdom wasn't just inspiring it was actually inspired by god and so when these same apostles started to write down these words, the written words of the apostles were also viewed as inspired by God. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16 says, you know, Peter says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Uh, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. And he writes, Paul writes it the same way in all his letters, Speaking in them, you see the conflation between writing and speaking and speaking and writing. Speaking in them, uh, in his letters, these matters, his letters, Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand, um, which the ignorant and the unstable distort. Watch this, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So just think about the logic there. Peter says you have this category of. The scriptures, part of which is Paul's letters, and people distort these scriptures, Paul's letters, just as they do the other scriptures, probably probably referring to the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. So, uh, and there's other texts we can cite, but um, uh, certain letters and books written by certain people in the first century were viewed as scripture by the end of the first century we see the last book written the book of revelation in around ad 90 that's the last book written in the canon however however it's not like john who wrote the book of revelation got some audible from heaven you know he just finishes his last words you know maranatha please lord come or i forget how he ends the book of revelation lord come and it's not like god says okay, John, that's it, wrap, give it a wrap, that's it, put that, you know, go ahead and take your book and go ahead and slide it in the slot, that's number 27, and now we have our complete canon, and then now Christians everywhere can walk around with their New Testament canon, like that's not how, I, I, I wish it were the case, maybe, it wasn't, it was a bit more messy than that, if John finishes his book in around AD 90, we don't really see, um, a consensus on which books belong in the New Testament canon until the late 4th century AD. The first time we actually see a list of New Testament books, 27, no more, no less, comes in 367 in a letter by a Christian leader by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius is well known for being a staunch defender of the deity of Christ. And Athanasius also uh, wrote a letter where he lists the 27 books in our New Testament, no more, no less. So what happens between uh, the closing of the... Well, what happens between the last book written in AD 90 and 300 years later when we now see Christians coming to agreement on what books are belonging in the New Testament? Well, it, it's it, it, it's a bit of a messy process. I'll just be honest with you. But there are two ex- two views, two extreme Views I want to avoid, two extreme views on the canonization of the New Testament. One extreme would be, and I hear this sometimes, especially by atheists who are trying to tear down uh, Christianity or discredit the Bible. You know, they, they present things in a way that makes it sound like there are a bunch of power driven leaders in the church who just wanted power and they sort of arbitrarily selected which books they wanted in the New Testament canon because those books supported their power was one big power grab by, you know, priests and leaders in the Christian church. Well, that's not, first of all, that's not historically true. And secondly, it doesn't make sense because, well, you've read the New Testament. Let me ask you a question. Does the New Testament seem to be pro-people in power or kind of pro-servant and slave and underdog and marginalized? Like, I mean, if... If it's true that people in power selected the 27 books to be in the New Testament, I think they did a really bad job at selecting books that actually undercut their power. So it doesn't really make sense that it was just simply an arbitrary selection of people in power. The other view to uh, view that I would want to avoid when we look at the canonization of the New Testament is to think that again, you know, John just got some audible from heaven the second he finished his book and said, "All right, God, John, go put this in the canon," and then everybody else kind of said, "Yay, we have a canon, twenty-seven books," and then there was no dispute about that. Like that's that's historically inaccurate. He- here's how we should understand that that ye- the gap of time between the writing of the Book of Revelation and the and the and you know, the the, church agreement on which books belong in the New Testament. First of all, there was a, I'll say unanimously accepted canon within the canon. So of the 27 books of the New Testament, 21 of those books were immediately, widely, as far as we can tell, unanimously accepted by the Christian church as not just be being inspiring, but being inspired that these books were scripture, that these were, uh, these books constituted the authoritative measure by which we should believe and live. These books, the, the this Canon within the Canon are the four gospels, the book of Acts, 13 letters of Paul, the book of Hebrews, um, first Peter and first John. Okay. Do I need a Say that again. Well, you can probably just stop and rewind and go listen to that again. We're still getting used to doing Sunday morning preaching when you can kind of stop and fast forward and speed up my voice. Maybe don't speed up my voice. It would sound I'd sound like Mickey Mouse. But um, So, okay, you have a canon within the canon, 21 New Testament books that nobody disputes. Okay, I think that's really important, especially if some people think it was just completely arbitrary, one big mess, a big pile of books, and people just kind of cho- picked and choose what they wanted to. That's That's not true. So, which books were disputed? James, Jude, 2 Peter, 1, uh, 2 and 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Why are these books disputed? Well, I mean, there's various reasons for each one. Um, and when I say disputed, it's not like the jury was completely out. I'm just saying certain branches of Christianity disputed, didn't reject, but my, you know, raised questions about these books. For instance, the book of James. There's a verse in James chapter 2, which seems to contradict... Romans 3, 28. Paul, you know, in Romans emphasizes justification by faith alone. And James comes along and says, no, we're justified by works as well. And it's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Like, is this a contradiction? And because Paul was viewed as so authoritative, people looked at James with, with some skepticism. But if you've done any research into that apparent contradiction, I, I emphasize apparent um, I think the context of James, if you study James and who he's writing to in the context of James 2 and what he says throughout the whole chapter, you see that he is giving not a contradiction. He's not contradicting Paul. He's simply giving the other side of the same coin of faith and works. The book of Revelation was disputed by some in the Eastern church in the third century. Uh, largely because of the the nature of the literature, you have wild images and scenes, and it you know seems like it was written by somebody on an acid trip, right? I mean, you're looking at all these dragons and monsters and stuff, and some people said, "Gosh, is this should this be in the canon? This doesn't feel like the other twenty one books." But then when you look at the content of Revelation, you understand apocalyptic the uh, literature. Which we already have back in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in the Book of Daniel, especially. This is not foreign to the New or to the Bible. Um, people realize no, this this does square with what we know about the rest of the Bible. There is also other books that I'll, I'll say almost made it in the canon. You know, um, the, the, <laughs> I heard somebody say, you know. You Christian, you came this close to doing your devotions in the Shepherd of Hermes this morning. I'm like, whoa, what? what does that mean? You know, well, there was this book called the Shepherd of Hermes. And it was widely read in the early church. And some people, not all, um, not a lot, but some people regarded the Shepherd of Hermes as canonical. Um, The Apocalypse of Peter, the Didache, the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe you've heard about some of these books. Um, Some branches of Christianity accepted these books in the canon. But again, over time, um, the majority said, "You know what? I don't think these books are should be part of scripture." Um, and there's several criteria that the early church came up with to determine which books were in, which books were out. So three of the it was like uh, four or five points that they would uh, reference. But the three main ones are: number one, to be part of scripture, it had to, it had to, it has to have apostolic authorship, or if it's not written directly by an apostle, it has to be written by an associate. So most of the books in the new Testament were written by apostles, but you have books like Luke and Acts that are written by a, not Luke's not an apostle, but Luke was a companion of Paul. And so he kind of is in the apostolic circle. Same thing with Mark. Mark is not an apostle, but he's also a companion of Peter. And so Peter kind of verifies the message of Mark. Um, so was the book written by an apostle or did it come from apostolic circles? Was it written? Number two, was it written, um, during the apostolic era, namely what we now call the first century, because if a book's written in the thir- second, third, or fourth century, it's too far now removed from the apostolic circles. And this is why books like the gospel of Peter, um, the gospel of, uh, Thomas is one of the most well-known um, books that you know people reference that's outside the canon. Well, Gospel of Thomas is at the very earliest second century. Some people put it into the th- third century, and wasn't has no sort of apostolic, um, uh, any scent of apostolic authorship on it. Also, people, number three, would say this disputed book, The Apocalypse of Peter, the Didache, you know, First Clement is another one of these books. Does it align with the undisputed 21 books of the canon within the canon? Remember, we do have an immediate measure by which to measure other things. And when you compare these other books to the 21 clearly canonical books, uh, some of them don't match up. The Shepherd of Hermes it, it has some statements that are pretty anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. And people said, well, these this doesn't really resonate with the message of the, the books that everybody accepts. Or the Gospel of Thomas. or Yeah, the Gospel of Thomas has a picture of Jesus that is very different than what we see in the fourfold canonical Gospels that everybody accepts. Okay, so in summary of the New Testament, okay, 21 disputed, undisputed books. Um, over six books were disputed by some. Other books were also considered canonical by some, but the early church did develop a thoughtful criteria to determine which books were in and which books were out. So no, wasn't a bunch of uh, power-mongering priests just selecting books to keep them in power. And no, it didn't just fall out of the sky. It was a messy process, but I do believe it was a divinely Ordained, and I think God oversaw the process by which humans were led by God, guided by God, to select or recognize, we should say, um, which books God wanted in his canon. But God didn't, He he allowed some of the messy process to take place um, over a few hundred years. So, um, why does this matter? Let me give you three reasons why this matters. Number one, if we're going to live buy this book, I think it would be good for Christians to understand the origin of this book. If we're going to say, this is God's word mediated through human writers, and, and I'm going to read it maybe daily, I'm going to study it. I'm going to, you know, if, if this book tells me to do something and somebody else, the government tells me to do something else, I'm going to follow the book. I might even die because I'm I'm following what this book says. If if that's our posture, and I think it is, should be, then I want to know where this book came from. I want to know a little more about this. So when I come across a website that says a bunch of power mongering priests who told you that this is authoritative, I need to be able to say no. That's that's actually not historically accurate. That's not. I don't. That doesn't. I shouldn't rattle my faith. Number two, the Bible has always been a central part of the Christian faith. The Bible has always been an essential part of the Christian faith. I am not saying, please hear me, I'm not saying that the Bible is like a fourth member of the Trinity. (laughs) I am not saying that we should idolize the Bible itself. The the Bible is the messenger. It's mediating God's word to us, but the authority is in God, not just in in the paper here. The fact that I'm missing the first two pages of Genesis here is that's not sacrilegious because This book is a medium mediating God's message to us. We worship God. We don't worship the Bible. And yet the Bible is and always has been a central part of Christianity all the way down to the messy process by which humans recognize which books should be in and which books shouldn't be in. A lot of blood, sweat, tears, energy, debates, disputes, and discussions happen in the first few hundred years to determine or recognize which books should be in the new Testament, largely because it was so crucial that we figure out where the boundaries are on scripture. Number three, trusting the Bible takes faith, but it's not blind faith. It's not blind faith. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be scared of the historical process of canonization. We shouldn't be scared of science. We, should, we don't have to worry about, um, the, the historical context that the Bible was written, and it's okay to peel back the curtain and take a peek into the origin of the very book we say we are living by. And yes, there is an element of there is an element of faith to say I believe this is God was God's word, but it's not blind faith. It is faith rooted in history, logic, and science. I'm sure you have more questions. I think we're going to do our best to answer, uh, as many of your questions, questions as you, as we can throughout this series. Uh, I think we're planning even a whole Sunday where we're just going to devote it to some of the main, uh, questions on this really important topic. Uh, but until then, I just want to say, let's read our Bibles. Let's live by the scriptures. Let's pray that God would give us the courage in these tumultuous times to orient our life around the inspired message of God revealed through these pages of Scripture. I'm so excited to continue this study with you. I want to close this in prayer, and then we'll see you next time. Father, I pray over us all that you would ignite in our hearts a a renewed passion. Maybe for some of us it's a renewed passion to want to study your word and to live by what it says. In Christ's name, amen.